Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Gene Epstein. I've got a lot of listeners who are Bitcoiners who would like more exposure to Austrian economics, so this episode will be a real treat for you. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. So firstly, Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They have a really strong focus on security. They are one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best. They have a high quality platform. They offer some of the best liquidity available in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support, and on the institutional and business solution side, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation, and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers, and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk for large block trades. They offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. So go to kraken.com to sign up. There's a link in the show notes. Next, Unchained Capital. They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a really cool two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger. It's a web interface. It's really simple to use and it allows you to distribute your keys. Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans so you can get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins. So consider your scenario, but this might be more tax efficient for you, meaning you can keep hodling rather than selling your Bitcoins. While that loan's outstanding, it's stored under collaborative custody with Unchained. So if you want to learn more and sign up, go to unchained-capital.com. There's a link in the show notes. Gene Epstein is director of the Soho Forum, a really popular debate forum. And prior to this, he was economics and books editor at Barron's for 26 years. And he has got a lot of insight to share with us in terms of Austrian economics and how some of that applies to Bitcoin. Gene, welcome to the show. It's a uh, pleasure to finally meet you. Uh, is it Stefan or Stephen? Yes, Stefan. Stefan. Well, Stefan. And uh, uh, here I am in New York City at six in the evening, and you're in Australia at eight in the morning tomorrow. And that's pretty exciting in itself. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, look, so Gene, I've uh, listened to many of your appearances. I'm a big fan, obviously, of Tom Woods and Bob Murphy. So I've appeared, I've listened to your appearances there. And also I'm a fan mm-hmm. of your work uh, in moderating and being the director of the Soho Forum. Uh, and I know you've got a lot to share in terms of Austrian economics. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we could just start with a little bit of an intro on you and what are you working on these days with Soho Forum? Uh, well, the, the, the Soho Forum, uh, a week from, uh, actually six days from today, uh, New York City time, is going to have a debate on uh, the war on drugs. And uh, our uh, debater, um, uh, the debater for the affirmative, uh, it's always a one-on-one debate. Uh, uh, the debater for the affirmative Jacob Salem, who's written a lot about the subject, in fact, also included a book, uh, a very good book about the subject, is going to defend the very extreme version of the complete legalization of drugs. Uh, that while he's granting that uh, you may want to have a law governing uh, the sale of drugs to minors, uh, you may want to have a law that uh, governs uh, the use of drugs by people uh, driving automobiles, but beyond that, Nothing, no laws against drugs at all, even including the sin taxes on drugs, which, of course, we do have for alcohol and regrettably for pot. So it's going to be a very extreme view that he's going to defend against uh, former New York Times journalist Alex Berenson. And so I think it should be an exciting 
confrontation. Uh, I myself, uh, uh, on November 5th, that's the next debate we're going to have, uh, will be debating once again uh, socialism with perhaps the most eminent socialist in the country, Richard Wolff, who's written many books on the subject and uh, numerous articles, uh, perhaps the leading socialist in the country. This very possibly will be my last debate with a socialist, but I definitely wanted to, to do uh, argumentative combat with Richard Wolff. That will be on November 5th, uh, all of it in New York City. That's fantastic. I really like uh, watching some of the debates. Uh, obviously, I'm in Sydney, so I have to watch the online version, but uh, I really enjoy the debates. I think you get a lot of really high quality people and you really moderate them well. Uh, we've, we know uh, in, uh, in the, if those of Bitcoiners who have listened to some other debates know that there have definitely been some, uh, let's say, poorly moderated debates and they, they just they don't result in a nice conversation. And I think you need a little bit of that strong moderation to make sure that it is well organized and orchestrated. Well, thank you. That's interesting. We're going to be discussing, uh, I, I know you said uh, you were interested in the two debates I had on Bitcoin and one of the, one of the debates I had on fractional reserve banking. And so we, I gather we, we're going to get your thoughts on those, uh, the substance of those confrontations and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. So look, I think, yeah, you're right. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, before we get into those, I think you uh, it might be nice to just discuss some of the fundamentals of Austrian economics and money from yes. you know the legends Mises mm. and Rothbard. Mm. Did you want to mm. just give us an overview of your own thoughts on how they might apply, you know, uh, and potentially are there any things that you believe Bitcoiners are missing or confused on? Yes. Uh, well, again, I'm going to assume that um, your readers or your listeners rather know very little or next to nothing about the subject, and really that's okay. It's almost preferable that you haven't been brainwashed by the mainstream. Uh, I myself, uh, you know, sleepwalked through high school and college, and uh, I uh, didn't study any economics in undergraduate school, almost luckily. But then uh, I was interested in socialism, and I went to the new school, and uh, I ended up teaching mainstream economics uh, to uh, undergraduates. And uh, by pure happenstance, I picked up a copy of uh, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, and that was a game changer for me. Uh, it was kind of a funny way to get into uh, libertarianism, free markets, uh, through that text, uh, that, that two-volume tome. But uh, because I was teaching uh, economics and because I was interested in issues of socialism and capitalism, it was my way in. And in fact, I have an introduction uh, that I was privileged to write for a collection of Murray Rothbard's essays. But backing up for a moment, why are they, Why do we call that Austrian economics? Well, it came out of Austria, amazingly enough, and I can't even quite know why. What is it about the Austrians that made them so uh, perceptive? Uh, it's associated with Austrian economists, uh, with Ludwig von Mises, as you mentioned, and then also Mises was a student, basically, of Karl Menger, another Austrian, and uh, and Bambauer, Eugen Bambauer, also an Austrian. Those are the three most prominent uh, Austrian economists who were indeed uh, from Austria. And it was, and we have Adolf Hitler to thank, uh, ironically, uh, for the fact that Ludwig von Mises, who was a Jew, uh, fled uh, Vienna uh, and for Switzerland, and then fled Switzerland for New York City, uh, fled Hitler, and. Uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises set up shop at NYU, uh, couldn't get a, a normal academic appointment, but he had a subject to do a seminar, and that seminar 
gradually attracted a lot of Americans. One of them uh, was Murray Rothbard, who, uh, of course, went on to call himself an Austrian, even though, of course, he's just a Brooklyn Jew. I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a Bronx Jew. He's a Brooklyn Jew, and uh, and Rothbard became, in a way, uh, you know, Plato to Mises and Socrates. Amazingly, Socrates, uh, Mises, uh, at the age of fifty-eight, after having published many books in German, uh, began to write in English. Uh, amazingly, because he wrote so well in English uh, for somebody who had been used to writing in German, and I highly recommend his book *Human Action*, uh, written in English plus other books. And I, in a way, I think the best name for Austrian economics is indeed human action. And if one, if one were to ask, what is it that distinguishes, is there Austrian economics from mainstream economics? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is in a way, Austrian economics is a, a redundancy. Uh, what do I mean by redundancy? Whenever we naturally think about economics without being prompted. And here I'm addressing people who have no background in economics. We use the method of methodological individualism. We, we work from the individual and the individual's motivations, and we see the market as a process, as a process of trial and error. Uh, we, we read about Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who decided that the market was deeply mistaken uh, to be channeling so many goods through the bricks and mortar outlet of retail, uh, retail bricks and mortar. Uh, he foresaw that we could buy so many goods through the internet, through the mails. And so that's how he became the richest man in the world. And Bezos is now continuing to tell us that the market is still deeply in error because as he've said, as he has said, I can't be the merchant to the world unless I also get into food and clothing. So he said as well that all these purchases we're making uh, of food and clothing through bricks and mortar stores are simply inappropriate. He's going to correct that market error. And so the market is never in equilibrium, uh, which is the focus of the mainstream. Uh, the market is always in error, and there are always people coordinating, competing in a rivalrous fashion to readjust uh, the market to correct that error. So that, by the way, so that it better serves consumers and better serves those of us who work in the market. Because as Rothbard also said, there is no consumer sovereignty. There is only individual sovereignty. We individually have sovereignty over ourselves, just as you, Stefan, have decided that you're going to pursue a certain career. Nobody told you the consumer is not your boss. You've you've said, well, this is what I want to sell to the consumer. This is what I the way I want to make my livelihood. And so you're exercising individual sovereignty, which is fundamental to Austrian economics. But now let's narrow in, hone in on how the Austrian economics uh, uh, applies to Bitcoin. I think it's interesting as a footnote that based upon what I read about uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who was, of course, the, the ghost-like uh, originator of Bitcoin, he had some familiarity with Mises and some familiarity with Austrian economics. Well, this is in a narrow fashion, and this is ironic. If you, if you study the mainstream, then mainstream economics tells you that money has got to be managed by the government via a central bank. They've suddenly decided that money has got to be dominated by a government institution. And this is never questioned uh, by the mainstream. They just begin from the point that money is outside the market. It, it has to be managed by government. About 
this is an unexamined assumption. And of course, what's distinguished Ludwig von Mises especially is that in 1913, he wrote a book called The Theory of Money and Credit, and in which he basically understood that, that the origins of money precedes government uh, and that he invented something called the regression theorem, which I think is a lovely theorem because it's an inference about history that we use money, we value money because of what we know it can buy. But how do we know it can buy anything? Well, we know because it could buy things yesterday. And then how did we know yesterday that it could buy things? Because we knew that it could buy things the day before. And then so that regresses further and further back. And then Mises asks, well, what happened at day zero? How did, moan? How did anybody know that money could buy things? And that's because, as Mises said, because all money originates in a commodity, as in the case of gold. It originates in gold. And there are many who have a hang up about Bitcoin because people think that Bitcoin did not originate as a commodity, but Bitcoin was tied to the dollar. And there was a certain insight, a certain knowledge about what money could buy that made Bitcoin money. And uh, and then, of course, famously, uh, those pizza pies were bought by Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin became a medium of exchange. But there are now key insights that we know from the Austrians that I think are eternal and that I wish at times uh, the Bitcoin enthusiasts who know often far more about the technicalities of Bitcoin than I know, I wish they would take them for granted. Uh, one of those things is that money is a network commodity. It's the network commodity. Uh, and uh, what does that mean? It means that there is a natural tendency for uh, money to be the, that thing that people most want. In the case of gold, uh, it was the thing that people most want. Gold was at that point the most suitable medium of exchange. And, and then once that happens, once that begins to catch on, then in terms of human action, people then want to hold the money that most other people want to hold. And then the others want to hold the most the money that most others want to hold. And so very quickly, we realize that because we want to buy the, hold the money that will buy the most things, uh, very rapidly, uh, one money arises. Mises, by the way, allowed for the possibility that there might have been two monies. He, he actually pointed out we didn't never really quite got the historical experiment. Maybe money could have been gold and silver. Maybe there could have been two monies, the more valuable money gold, the less valuable money silver. But the idea that there could even be more than two or more than one, that's almost questionable. So when we know that money is a network commodity, then we begin to understand that the balkanization of money is a nation-state phenomenon. The reason why we have the euro, the, the dollar, the Canadian dollar, the British pound, the yen, the Aussie dollar, is because we have nation-states, and those nation-states often want to have control of their own money. That's why we have exchange rates, uh, one money exchanging for another. But interestingly, interestingly, uh, 90% of the transactions internationally are made in the dollar because there's a natural tendency for the market to gravitate toward one money. And the dollar is the closest thing at hand. And so that is in a way testament to the, to, to the Austrian insight that money is a network commodity. But the, third, the, the, the second most important insight, and just recently I heard a very knowledgeable person on, on your show, Stefan, seemingly uh, imply ignorance about this other fact, which is why people hold money in the first place. Uh, Mises wrote 
uh, that the idea that money can never be a store of value is only true in, in a world in which you don't have stocks and bonds, uh, in a world in which you don't have other ways of investing your money. Uh, that money is never a store of value because money is inert. It doesn't earn anything. And if money is going to become, let, let's say prices are falling, which indeed would happen under Bitcoin. If prices are falling, your money is going to become more valuable a year from now, but better to invest it in stocks and bonds where it can earn dividends or capital gains or interest over and above that. And so Mises pointed out that we store value, those of us who aren't eccentric or nuts, we in, a, in an advanced industrial economy, we use uh, instruments like stocks and bonds to store value, or of course, we speculate in commodities, we speculate in real estate. All, all of those are ways of storing our value. We do not use money to store value. Again, that's for the eccentrics, you know, the Silas Marners of the world who want to store gold in their basement. Because that's uh, obviously not the not the most remunerative way to store value. So money is not a store of value, and and I think it's very unfortunate that this term has been used. Why do we hold money? This is the final insight. Uh, we hold money precisely because we live in a in a world of uncertainty. Because we never know when we're going to need a bit of money to buy something with. So we need some liquidity. But if we're rational, we keep our liquidity to a minimum. We try to store our money in short-term assets to convert it quickly uh, into money. It's a medium of exchange. And in, in a, an electronic marketplace, it, my, this money can be used very efficiently. As Rothbard in particular pointed out, if there were no uncertainty, if we knew exactly what we're going to buy every hour of the day and every day of the week, we would store all our money in short-term instruments, and it would immediately uh, uh, mature. And then in that instant, we'd use it to buy something with. But because, And then we'd have a very weird world indeed. But because we live in a world of uncertainty, we do need to hold some money balances. But that's the only reason why we hold money. And that would, now, of course, obviously, we are speculating in Bitcoin. We're speculating in Bitcoin because by and large, Bitcoin has not yet become money. Uh, but let me finish my final point in my little uh, disquisition. Um, my, uh, I, I believe, and I've been persuaded by so many people I've read, you as well, some things I've listened to from you, books like the one by uh, Safadine Amos, that, uh, that Bitcoin, if I were to choose, if I were to vote, then if there is going to be a free market in money, um, and I'm going to get to a moment why that's a possibility, then Bitcoin is probably the best candidate. It's probably the best candidate because it does, because while gold was good, gold had advantages, Bitcoin is a little better. And then maybe I could leave it to you to to, to elaborate on why it's a bit better. And uh, it's a bit better uh, by a noticeable margin. And I think, I think that the fiscal crisis of the state, which we could get into, which I believe is likely to happen 15 years from now. It could happen sooner, but we, the fiscal crisis of the U.S. state, in particular, the dominant state, uh, because it's uh, because the U.S. state is accumulating uh, so much debt, because 10 years from now, the mere servicing of the debt could cost a trillion dollars a year. I think there will be a fiscal crisis. There will be uh, an unleashing of the printing presses. There will be the potential for, ma for massive inflation, not necessarily a year from now or two years from now, but 10 to 
15 years from now because it's a gradual process with a very powerful U.S. And once that happens, then I believe Bitcoin, uh, the value of Bitcoin could take off, transactions in Bitcoin could take off. And for that reason, I think that my son Jim is right to say that it's judicious for the conservative person to do what he does. He buys $200 worth of Bitcoin every month, uh, and he buys it whatever, at whatever price the Bitcoin is available at. It's a kind of a conservative you know, income averaging, uh, price averaging, just whatever the Bitcoin is worth, buy $200 worth of it, so that you develop a, a base, uh, an ownership of Bitcoin at a decent price. He does it through Coinbase. Uh, I pretty much exhausted my disquisition on, on Austrianism and Bitcoin, but uh, so, so let's, uh, let, let's hear from you for a moment. I think there's a lot of really great insights in there sure. for my listeners uh, on that. Uh, you touched on the yeah. regression theorem. You touched on the network economics aspect of it and what we can think more yeah. like network yeah. effects rather. And uh, I think um, that to me brought to my mind this fantastic essay by Hans Hermann Hopper and he calls it, it's called How is Fiat Money Possible? And in that, he's talking about how there are different, you know, uh, if you will, trading zones around the world. But wouldn't it make more sense if there was one global trading zone, as opposed to, you know, each individual currency in each individual trading zone. And I think in that essay, Hans Hermann Hopper also refers back to a, a, a quote from Mises in Theory of Money and Credit. And I think there's a specific paragraph, but it's something like one by one commodities will be one by one rejected until we're sort of left with the most saleable one. And I think that really is the in my view, that's the key sort of quintessential insight. Uh, and that really, for me, uh, one of my favorite essays on this is Karl Menger's On the Origins of Money. And in that essay, Karl Menger is explaining how there are uh, things that cause differences in the saleableness of different goods. And then those differences sort of self-reinforce to the point that then there are some that are now more suitable to become a money compared to other goods that are not so suitable to become a money. Yes, and yeah, no, indeed, I, uh, I, you, you just quoted, I, I, I had mentioned Menger, and, and certainly Hans Simon Hoppe, who is a contemporary of mine, is, uh, is certainly a very worthy heir, uh, one, of, one of Rothbard's protégés, and his, his writings command attention. He's, uh, he's clearly in, in, writes in that great tradition and deepens our insight about, the, uh, about these facts. Indeed, uh, as uh, Hoppe said, we've, in a way, with all, with all these currencies afloat, we've, we've returned to a quasi-barter situation. Although, again, uh, the market, I, I wonder if, if, if even Hans points out that actually the market deals with that because they don't, because most things are priced in dollars. It's the most convenient uh, currency available. But indeed, we have a lot of Balkanization, barter, and almost a return to barter, as as Hans Hermann Harvey has pointed out. I just want to say negatively, negatively, that what you've just said uh, uh, means that if you ever have a guest on, and I think you might occasionally uh, have one on, who's informed about the technicalities of Bitcoin, but who's going to say, well, isn't it just wonderful we have so many competing cryptocurrencies, or uh, or we're, I'll quote another, uh, we're finding out what money is all about, you know, all this stuff. And again, you wish they'd read some of the people you just mentioned. Yeah, we're not saying these people wrote the Talmud, you know, they're not, they didn't, this is not chiseled in 
stone. However, I will say that these insights are just almost self-evident that money is a network commodity. There will be no, there will, would in, will indeed be, uh, if, if let's say tomorrow, all the nation states of the world would have just shut down their, their money operations, then there would indeed be competition out there. Gold might compete with, uh, with Bitcoin, maybe other cryptocurrencies will compete, but they will soon enough become one dominant money because that's the way people deal with the world. We we have short pencils. We just want one money uh, with which to deal, maybe two monies, but no more than two, probably one. And I wish uh, some of the crypto enthusiasts could recognize that. Absolutely. I think that's a point of uh, definitely uh, myself and some other, you know, Bitcoin advocates are very much uh, against uh, some of the altcoin gambling that goes on. And I think there's a lot of people who sort of sell these false promises about altcoins as though, you know, that they're going to, that there's going to be this kind of, as though there's going to be all these different monies. I think to some extent people are learning. So yeah, 90, yeah, um, 90, 90 money yeah. to choose from, right? Anyway, so uh, look, I, I think it might be also really interesting to discuss some of the debates that yeah. you have moderated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, actually, I think the listeners might really enjoy discussing about uh, the debate. Now, this is a couple. Of, I think this is one or two years ago. It's the debate with Eric Voorhees and Peter Schiff, right? And so it was sort of like a Bitcoin and gold debate. And one of the interesting uh, points that seem to kind of go constantly back and forward. And I guess for many Bitcoiners would be sort of skeptical of Schiff, Peter Schiff's seeming inability to understand the point about there being no such thing as intrinsic value, right? He seems to constantly kind of refer back to this need that, you know, oh, look, gold, you can make jewelry out of it, or you can yes, do right. space applications and so on. And so his argument in that debate seemed to be that Bitcoin, you yeah. can't do anything like that. And so therefore, it's all just going to go back to zero someday. Yeah. But what's your view there? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's good sequentially, you began with the first Bitcoin debate we had. And by the way, I, in that case, uh, last I checked, it's probably climbed since then, uh, that debate has had more than a half a million views on YouTube. And so perhaps a lot of people uh, listening to uh, this uh, discussion between you and me are already familiar with that debate. And that's uh, that just dwarfs everything else we've done. Uh, the recent Bitcoin debate we've had has been very popular as well. Maybe it'll get up to half a million views, but that that's off the charts for us. Uh, and uh, in that case, as you said, it was an interesting clash uh, between uh, somebody like Peter, uh, who uh, who's loyal to gold, and uh, and actually uh, a very smart guy who funds the Soul Forum, uh, Don Smith, uh, spoke as well that evening. He's a he's a he's a Bitcoin bear, and and they can't get past the idea that that Bitcoin might not have had uh, uh, independent uses as a commodity. Uh, and, uh, and, and for that reason, because it's not had independent uses as a commodity in the way that gold had, uh, then for that reason, it can't ever become money. And that, that I struggle with that a little bit. And uh, I, I don't think it's, I, I perhaps, it, it helped uh, for me to hear about, read about uh, Satoshi and recognize that he too understood that issue. Uh, and, and in particular, of course, we want to add that, uh, that 
that uh, Satoshi solved the problem that Friedrich Hayek had unwittingly raised. Hayek wrote a book that the Austrians said was an embarrassment, the uh, the privatization of money. Uh, it, um, that wasn't quite the title, but that was the thought. That the we, denationalization of money, right? Denationalization of money, yeah, thank you. That it would have, that, that we could uh, we could have private organizations bringing out money. Uh, Rothbard, uh, who was quite a joker, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn who liked to joke, said, yeah, I'm going to bring out Rothbards and everybody's going to use them. They're going to call. I'm going to call them Rothbard's money, and they're going to catch on. But who's going to trust me not to inflate the currency? Because I could become fabulously rich if I just inflated all the Rothbards out there. And uh, and and of course, uh, Murray Rothbard had a point. Uh, and prior to Satoshi's coming on the scene, I gather they did indeed bring out uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, which did not have the constraint that Satoshi imposed on it. And of course, as your listeners know, there will never be more than 21 million units of, of cryptocurrency, of, of Bitcoin out there. And so he solved that problem that, well, you don't have to trust me and you don't have to trust others. You'll have, you can trust this, this absolute lock I've placed on the availability of Bitcoin never more than 21 million units. And and then he, uh, I, I know that Bob Murphy, who's a esteemed colleague of mine, maybe he's been on your show. He's, he's of course, a very eminent Austrian economist. Uh, he said that, well, Bitcoin, Bitcoin just came from the dollar, just like other currencies do. So it's now built on the dollar and now it has all the advantages of being free market and money. That's probably a good argument. Uh, the other just part of it is that there was at least sufficient knowledge that this could be money. We were at an advanced stage in sort of human culture and civilization. And once Bitcoin was used to buy those pizza pies, uh, then it became money. So it wasn't, I think, too difficult to cross that divide. And Peter, uh, who uh, who has a lot of virtues, but I wish I wish he would read a little bit more of the Austrians. I wish he would inform himself a little bit better. He certainly embarrassed himself uh, in front of Eric Voorhees, who was extremely gracious and extremely polite, uh, who said, I've learned a lot from you, Peter, but Peter, nothing has intrinsic value. Uh, and so for you to say, gold is advantageous because it has intrinsic value, that's ridiculous. Nothing has intrinsic value. I, I would I would put it myself to say that you might think that food and water has intrinsic value. Certainly gold doesn't really, if gold is just going to be used as jewelry, but how about food and water? Well, food and water do not have intrinsic value until you've decided that your life has intrinsic value, that getting nourished has intrinsic value. If, if you want to starve, if you want a hunger strike, then they have no intrinsic value. If you, if you want to die, they have no intrinsic <laughs> So we have, to, we have to make a, a, an earlier decision before those things have any value at all to us. And so, again, nothing has intrinsic value. And Peter trotted out this naive statement, um, I used this term that's offensive to Austrians because, because what we left out of our, our little disquisition on the Austrian economics is that it recognizes the inherent subjectivity of all value. Nothing has value other than the subjective value we place on those things. So therefore, the only thing that they're hung up on is what I just mentioned, which is that gold is tangible, but gold has so many disadvantages, so much easier for the government to seize gold. It's a physical commodity to grab it from people. Uh, Bitcoin has its problems as well, but by and large, it has advantages over over gold. And I think that justifiably then, uh, 
uh, uh, Eric Voorhees won that debate according to Oscar Sell voting, as uh, perhaps those who uh, uh, who aren't familiar with their debates don't know. I use the classic Oxford style voting where through an electronic uh, uh, app, people can vote uh, yes, no, or undecided on the resolution before the debate begins. And then the vote, of course, that you get in your favor counts against you because the only way to win the debate is to, is to, is to score better after the debate is over, we have a second uh, vote, and then you win the Tootsie Roll if the if the vote moves in your favor more than it does in relation to your predecessor. As I recall, I didn't look it up before I, I started to talk to you. I think Steve uh, Peter lost a few votes and Eric gained, so that vote went to Peter. But do you have any special thoughts on that exchange and that debate? Yeah, so I think uh, I, I like the way you summarized that. I think uh, essentially amongst the Bitcoiners, some of the work was written to sort of show that Mises was almost showing his work in some sense. So like it, it doesn't, it's saying that once money has already kind of, become, once people have already started using using it for exchange it doesn't now have to keep having that if you will industrial use as gold has or whatever oh, yes. i think that's oh. kind of the way to think of it oh yeah yeah and by, by the way I, I will say something uh uh tell a little bit of a tale out of school uh uh when i i gave peter a hard time he seems to have forgiven me for it but i i i, I try very hard uh to to be uh, neutral as a moderator uh, and indeed i guess I, a professional secret is that if, if i walk into a debate where I'm sort of rooting for one side, more agree with one side than the other, as not infrequently happens, then I make a point of wherever I'm aware, giving a harder time to the side I'm rooting for. If I'm if I'm going to ask a, if I'm going to ask a challenging question, I always ask one of the other side. I I try to lean a little harder on the side I'm rooting for, uh, just to make sure that I don't betray any bias. I made a bit of an exception that evening when I asked uh, Peter this question, picking up on what you just said: Is gold gold does indeed have industrial and ornamental uses, but Anybody can tell you that the price at which it trades, even then it was down only at about, uh, what, $1,200 an ounce, the price at which it trades is way in excess of how, what it would be valued at purely for its ornamental uh, and industrial uses. And I asked Peter uh, in particular, uh, don't you agree with that? Where, where, would, where would the price of gold be if, if it was not regarded as a monetary metal? And Peter said he didn't know. He didn't know. So I embarrassed him. I said, Peter Schiff has just told us he has no idea what, what the price of gold should be. And he's the guy <laughs> who recommends gold. So uh, the, the guy is a goddamn billionaire. He's, and of course, he only we were talking about taxing. He only pays a 4% tax living in Puerto Rico. So I guess he could afford a little grief. And he didn't, uh, he, he didn't complain afterwards that I gave him a much harder time than I gave Eric Voorhees. <laughs> Yeah. One other point I think uh, might be interesting to discuss. Now, one point that Sh Peter Schiff was making was this idea of, oh, what about uh, gold-backed cryptocurrency? Now, many Bitcoiners are very anti that idea because, and let me explain why I think most of them, you know, most of us would say that's not, that's really missing the point, is that fundamentally sound money, well, part of that is about freedom from government yeah. interference. And Bitcoin is designed in such a way to resist that centralized control or getting co-opted. And I think as Bitcoiners, we would recognize that there were many attempts to create private money that either got shut down or got co-opted, right? So if we can look at PayPal, Liberty Reserve, eGold, etc. I mean, the list goes on. 
I, what's your view there around uh, a theoretical gold-backed cryptocurrency and whether that you know doesn't make sense and really about Bitcoin's government resistance, if you will? Well, that okay. Now, now you're really opening a big question. I'm, I'm probably going to duck some of that. I, I, uh, you, you, what you just said is uh, shows that you're more informed than I. But this idea of a, a mating the two of us, this hybrid gold-backed crypto, it sounds a little bit weird to me. Uh, but the point that you made sounds sensible to me. That it's not the best way to go. Uh, the only thing I could would want to stress is uh, why. Uh, why we want uh, money uh, to be divorced from government? Uh, you know, the we, I would prefer that government dominate uh, the production of shoes than have anything to do with money. The shoes would pinch, but we could wear sandals. We'd even be willing to wear walk barefoot. Uh, the history of money uh, and government is really that the kings wanted to fight their wars. Uh, uh, they could tax the people to finance the wars. They could borrow from the people to finance the wars. But those were very awkward, difficult things to do. So it occurred to them to seize the people's money, seize the gold, control the gold, and debase the currency and print money. And uh, and so really, uh, uh, money originated in the warfare state. Um, and uh, I think Murray Rothbard was correct to say that we Austrians believe that it's no coincidence that the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and the U.S. fought its one of its, its first one of its first major wars, World War One, in 1917. Uh, the 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 ability to print money uh, is underwrites uh, major wars that underwrote World War Two. Whatever you might think of the worthiness or lack of worthiness of World War Two, it was indeed financed through the printing press. And now, most of course, as as the welfare warfare state is developed, uh, then uh, the uh, the ability to print money finances the welfare warfare state. And that's the reason why we believe that it's not just about money. It's not just about the aesthetic issue of not liking the government to be able to print money. We believe that it really has a lot to do uh, with, with the abuse of government. And that we would even say to those people who are not even uh, conversant in these issues, uh, doesn't it bother you to think that the government um, is, is so unanswerable to the people that it doesn't really have to worry about taxing and borrowing uh, to get money to, to finance its operations? It can simply print money. And so it doesn't, in that sense, it's insulated from the will of the people completely. I mean, that's, of course, if you're, you know, a conventional Democrat, if you're conventional uh, classical liberal or even a modern day liberal, isn't that deeply disturbing? And so for that reason, uh, just as you indicate, we want the money of the future uh, to be workable, to be possible, of course, but we want it out of the hands of government. And of course, that creates a huge problem because uh, fighting government, uh, uh, government's going to fight back. There will be pushback. And uh, that gets into, of course, important issues about which I know something, but uh, maybe not as much as you and not as much as others about how would, how I know that cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular, has a better chance uh, of becoming a, f a free market in money, better chance of, of staying out of the hands of government than gold does. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure of all all of the ins and outs of that of that question. Yeah, totally fair enough. Um, one other point that I think you, you might be able to uh, sort of, you were touching on almost earlier with the network effects point, is that uh, at one point in that debate, Peter Schiff was trying to say Bitcoin isn't really scarce because there's all these other cryptocurrencies. Oh, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, would we not expect, uh, you know, in the same way that there are different uh, 
differences causing you know degree d- varying degrees of saleableness mm. in normal goods we would see that amongst cryptocurrencies as well and yeah. in our view we would see it like bitcoin is the most liquid one and the most decentralized one and has mm-hmm. the most you know best technology but uh, would you mm. would you say, would you say that's like a reasonable application of that idea that even amongst the cryptocurrencies as you know so to speak there's really there are differences amongst them and in that sense they are not the same yes Sure, and, and uh, I, I actually believe that in that case in particular, uh, uh, Eric Voorhees, I think, dealt pretty well uh, in parrying uh, what Peter said. Uh, certainly, uh, perhaps Eric even said that uh, you you could just as well say that gold isn't really scarce because there's also silver, and indeed, copper has been used as money. Uh, you know, you could you could say uh, anything's not scarce because then you could just decide that that those things that are similar to it but not the same uh, are are uh, that it's all the same. But in terms of subjective uh, votes and subjective understanding, and it all gets back to human subjectivity. Uh, uh, the fact that Bitcoin is in a class by itself, I think, is uh, is is, uh, is 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 obvious enough. Excellent. Uh, I would love to talk a little bit about another debate now. A more recent one is the uh, George Selgin versus Safety yeah, and Moose yeah. debate. Now the Selgin, sorry, and so the resolution was Bitcoin is poorly suited to the purpose of becoming any nation's main medium of exchange. And I guess one point that I saw uh, Dr. Selgin make was around basically the transaction cost and the the amount of time that it would take for settlement of Bitcoin. And therefore, and he was trying to say, well, look, they could turn to other alternative currencies before going to Bitcoin. And then I guess if I were to just represent Safety's view a little bit here, his view is more like, well, there could be many different central banks, if you will, or Bitcoin banks, and people may transact on layers above that. And they're not yeah. necessarily transacting directly on the Bitcoin mm-hmm. blockchain. Uh, did you have any views around that or anything to share? Yes, I want to I want to address that. But uh, but uh, just as a, as a prelude, I want to say one interesting thing that um, I uh, I I actually, George Selgin, as a matter of fact, has been in done three debates at the Soul Forum. Uh, I've done four, but I'm I've got a monopoly lock on it. But George George has done three, <laughs> and uh, and he's he's very smart. I've learned a lot from him. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, but with that said, <laughs> I I was surprised by one thing. I, uh, I I've uh, known him over the years. He's done book reviews for me when I was at Barron's, and he had told me uh, most recently more than once, that his problem with Bitcoin was, in fact, that there would be no more than 21 million units uh, of Bitcoin. And uh, he uh, he told me he was convinced that that what this meant, as indeed it does mean, that not only will prices of consumer goods and capital goods decline over time because if there's if we get to over 21 million units but if we if we double and triple the amount of capital goods and the amount of consumer goods and services out there then clearly as a matter of simple monetary math uh, those prices have got to come down uh, over time and that's already a problem by the way even for for uh, for uh, you know quasi free market people like the Chicago school just the very fact that prices will decline uh, but not so much of a problem for Austrians that prices of goods and services of capital goods will decline. Uh, we are able to explain to people, uh, people will even ask us, well, if prices are going to decline over time, how, why would any capitalist want to invest in anything? Because he's going to have to sell it for less in a year or two. Well, obviously, the answer 
that is that the capitalists work with the spreads. They'll pay for fractures of production at a lower price, factoring in their expectation of profits. Uh, they're not stupid. Uh, but so therefore, we, we have to get past that hang up, which is not George's hang up. George's hang up was that labor expands over time. We have twice as many people working um, working now as we had in uh, 1969. We're, we will most likely have an expanding labor supply. So if in 30, 40 years, let's say Bitcoin becomes money now, and then 30, 40 years, twice as many people are working, that means compensation, labor compensation has got to be cut in half. And uh, that's almost unprecedented. It's almost never happened on a sustainable basis. During the late 1800s, what happened was that prices came down, but but wages more or less were flat. That's how people got richer. So, but we didn't have a cut in wages, uh, in, in nominal wages. Uh, now, that was George's hang-up. And I spoke to his colleague, uh, Larry White. His colleague, because Larry White and George are you, you often linked, very thoughtful people with different views about fractional reserve banking, but they bring a lot of interesting uh, 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 insights to the subject. And Larry agreed with me that George was getting a little bit too hung up, and that and that it and that the idea that that people are going to rebel against a cut in their wages, uh, rebel against a situation in terms of simple math. Well, yeah, you're earning half as much as you did, uh, you know, a number of years ago, but prices are now ninety percent lower of what you want to buy, so you're five times richer. Are people that stupid? Uh, are we going to have labor union strikes? Well, not in a free market. <laughs> we, so again, that that I thought George was a little bit daft on that subject, uh, but he was hung up on it. To my astonishment, uh, so now I get to the denouement of uh, this long disquisition on George's daftness. To my astonishment, when he got up there to debate Safadian, he is going over the pluses and minuses of Bitcoin. And to my astonishment, almost the first thing he says is the fact that Bitcoin has a fixed supply of 21 million units. For that, it gets an A. I, for that, it's a, it's a plus. I said, what? George, what are you what did you what were you saying for months on end to me about this? I had actually told Safadin in advance, be prepared for that. He's gonna say that we, that it's unsustainable because it's got a fixed uh, supply and of course compensation has come labor compensation has come down. He didn't say that at all. And then I began to realize George Selgin, as brilliant an economist as he is, is obviously a little bit buffeted by this subject of Bitcoin. I don't know if he can really quite make up his mind or quite put, put his mind around it. Now I'm going to try to answer your question. Uh, but uh, and, and this is in part something I learned from my son, Jim Epstein, who I mentioned to you, who knows a lot more about Bitcoin than I. My son, Jim Epstein, who is a uh, a producer at uh, at Reason TV and a and a scholar for uh, for the Reason for Reason Magazine Reason Foundation. Uh, uh, this is the thing. When just as you said, when George said that the transaction costs of trade of turning Bitcoin over are too great, Safdie did indeed fairly respond that George was 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 making another naive error. He didn't recognize that that consumer transactions, that most transactions that take place uh, can be simply accumulated in uh, uh, over time, and that, the, and that the real settlement of Bitcoin can take place in very large blocks. Uh, and that, and that, therefore, uh, this idea of George's that that you're going to buy, you know, hundred dollars worth of stuff when you go to uh, the supermarket, and that, and that it's got to 
actually be cleared the hundred dollars worth of stuff in terms of Bitcoin when you go to the supermarket, and that that Bitcoin has got to be cleared that that hundred that hundred dollar equivalent transaction or that two Bitcoin equivalent or one Bitcoin or half a billion uh, equivalent Bitcoin transaction has got to be cleared in the in the classic sense is naive. What will happen is that that financial institutions will accumulate those transactions, and then there will be clearance and settlement at a much deeper level, you know, in terms of billions of Bitcoins, I shouldn't have said billions, thousands of Bitcoins or hundreds of Bitcoins in much larger blocks so that there will be no problem with respect to settlement uh, in Bitcoin. So I think that, and and Safadian did indeed, I think, uh, pretty clearly parry uh, George's point by responding in that way. But but now... uh, there is another problem, and uh, here I'm going to quote Jim Epstein. Maybe you want to have him on to explain it. I've asked Safadine, but I think he's a little bit tone deaf about it. Safadine then talked about, you know, but there'll be there could be credit cards. There could be, and he was right to some degree. There could be credit cards. He said, look, you, if you want to give your grandmother, if, if some people want to hold Bitcoin cash, if some people are old fashioned, they need to hold, you know, Bitcoin cash or Bitcoin coins. There would be a market for that. If there's a market for that, if they want it, then that could be dealt with as well. There'd be an entrepreneurial incentive to provide that. But but uh, Jim Epstein was making a distinction in terms of the threat of government. And that, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. He, Jim's argument is that is that the Lightning Network has hopes of developing uh, a transaction mechanism for consumers for small transactions that could stay out of the reach of government, but that PayPal and the more conventional credit card companies are much more exposed. And uh, maybe you could talk uh, speak to that issue. Uh, so Jim Epstein has hopes uh, that because he thinks that the Lightning Network has made advances and 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 could and could establish um, a mechanism whereby we can transact in Bitcoin outside the reach of government. But that but that Safadine was was lumping the one with the other and not being sufficiently cognizant of the dangers of government interference. So that's the best answer I can give. I'm curious about your 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 thoughts. Sure. So I'm happy to, I can just give a very quick overview there. So the Lightning Network, we can think of that like a way to open, think of it like I'm opening a tab with you and I'm settling only the final transaction. Now we can get into the technical parts, all right? So there's a funding transaction, there's a commitment transaction, etc. But we don't need to go into that level of detail. But I think the key point to understand is that the Lightning Network is just as what we call trust minimized as Bitcoin, it providing some of the, you're, you're able to get that transaction into the blockchain to settle out your closing, uh, closing the tab, if you will. And so the cool thing with that is it can dramatically scale Bitcoin while still keeping many of the same, if you will, trust assumptions about Bitcoin. And so what it could theoretically do is imagine a world where we had no Lightning Network and we might need to be reliant on there being, as Safety says, I think maybe whatever, 10,000 Bitcoin banks, right? Maybe Lightning Network helps enable there to be even more Bitcoin banks. Uh, and then there are other technologies that are coming that will allow people to have different levels of, let's call it trust or security. And by delegating certain uh, components of that, for, mm-hmm. so for example, to a side chain such as Liquid. Uh, but again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the technical uh, components of it. But I think at a high level, the way we would think of that and explain that is that some of these technologies enable us to still transact denominated mm-hmm. in Bitcoin and you know it's not like fractional reserve like lightning is fully reserved and 
in doing so, but still dramatically lower the cost of doing these transactions. Now, that said, there's still work to be done on these things. Um, but we, most of us, like I'm, I'm bullish on Lightning, uh, <laughs> in case it's not clear. Um, so I think, I think these things can be solved with additional work. And, uh, well, uh, it'd be fascinating to hear you exchange your, your bullishness on Lightning, just as my son Jim Epstein is bullish on it as well, uh, in this sense uh, that his argument is that the Lightning Network has the best potential uh, to uh, to be uh, outside the reach of government, to subvert government's power uh, to interfere, and that and you feel that as well. Yes, because I think fundamentally one of the, if you will, things about trying to scale Bitcoin is that every full node must maintain a record of every transaction ever in Bitcoin, and the fundamental reality is that it's not possible to in some sense, make every, you know, to scale that to every person's transactions directly on Bitcoin. But what we can think of it like is Lightning is taking some of those transactions off of Bitcoin's blockchain by, you know, as we mentioned, sort of doing like a settlement at the end. And what it's also doing is there's another more complicated part, which is it's not just I could open a channel with you. It's I can pay somebody like you might have a channel open to somebody else let's say you had a channel open with safety and i could and i don't have a direct channel with safety i can pay through my channel with you to the channel with safety and so that's called multi-hop right so again i'm getting a little bit more into the technical components of it but i think if i were to just summarize the key point here for you it would just be that we are able to dramatically keep mm -hmm. bitcoin more decentralized and in doing so, it remains more government resistant. Um, but yeah, uh, but I'm also interested uh, to discuss, I think because you, you made a lot of really great comments before and I was interested to sort of dive a little deeper into one of them, is this question of the fixed money supply of Bitcoin. Because it sounds like some... So obviously there are inflationists out there, right? Like the Keynesians and they will make this oh, different, yeah. you know, sticky yeah. wages argument. And uh, yeah, and I, I remember listening to a talk uh, by... Dr. Guido Holzman, and he was explaining how there is a certain wing, uh, I think the Weiserian wing, who might sort of believe in a, in a need for inflation as well, whereas I think most of us would believe there's no need for inflation. But I, I'm curious, do, do you see any similarities there between the view of Dr. Selgin around the, you know, the fixed supply and uh, the Keynesian sticky wages argument? Are they different Are they, or are they similar? Well, that's a good question, uh, and uh, as I said, uh, there are uh, there seem to be two Dr. Selgins. That's the problem, right? I mean, he he astonished me by completely dropping the argument, actually saying that the fixed supply is an advantage, and uh, and so uh, I I don't know what to think. And as I as I mentioned to you, Larry White, who's very much uh, a uh, in tune with George. A lot, I mean, their their work is similar. They're both interesting guys. Uh, they're free market oriented. They both want the Federal Reserve to be abolished. Uh, they have mixed feelings about uh, Bitcoin. Uh, they uh, Larry agreed with me uh, that uh, that uh, that it's there's so many. You know, we now just have to think in terms of human action of how people uh, will respond what what kind of uh, do do we think that that people 
uh, that 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 laborers will, are going to go on strike or quit an interesting job because the company says uh, that our prices and our, uh, our our revenue situation is such that we're going to have to cut your nominal wage by four percent next year. Uh, but then we we point out to you, however, that that prices of most of what our employees are buying are down by 30% and that therefore you're better off, but we're not going to be able to employ you or stay in business if everybody objects uh, to the 4% cut. I, I mean, it's difficult to imagine uh, what these people conjure up. What what exactly is going to uh, happen? Is everybody going to quit? Or is there going to be a universal strike? What I mean, it, uh, do we... Do we? I mean, are we going to say that if labor unions dominate the economy, I will grant this. If labor unions dominate the economy and and they declare a universal strike because because we we can't cut wages, then I guess there will be uh, then the economy will come to a standstill. But uh, but we who point out that laborers actually do have a lot of power, that wages do rise, uh, and real wages that is rise. Uh, because uh, labor laborers do have bargaining power. If if you don't get offered enough by Company A, you've got Company B, C, D, and E to go to. Uh, then we point that out. But on the other side of it, uh, uh, we, in this case, we should point out that labor won't have the power to object, especially if if, if we get we, we want to imagine this learning period where people have got to get used to a situation in which nominal wages will decline. Uh, there would be massive attempts and massive interest on the part of employers to to start education to uh, to post things on the internet to 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 train people in the situation to make the point that with only 21 million units uh, of of money out there uh, revenues are necessarily going to decline but you're going to get richer in the process so Difficult to imagine that people are that stupid or that the transition cannot be made. But then if you then want to talk about the virtues of that, I think that Bob Murphy, again, the guy I just mentioned, who's probably, I'm sure you're familiar with, who writes a lot in the Austrian tradition, uh, he's pointed out that in a way there's an, an advantage to the 21 million units because it, it means that for long-term planning, for 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 annuities, for, for, for the purchase of bonds, for the figure, for figuring out where prices are going to be, that's one element of stability in the marketplace that people can depend on. And it will probably mean then that in the long run, it will be easier to make long-term calculations about where the economy is going. So difficult for me to believe that that's a problem. And I, I although, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you tell me, maybe, maybe Satoshi could have set it up so that there could be some gradual expansion of the money supply. But I do think that 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 the dramatic declaration that 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 nobody can debase the currency because there will never be never more than 21 million units is an extremely valuable thing to have said. And at the end of the day, difficult to imagine why anybody should have a problem with it. Clearly, the Keynesians have a problem with it because uh, because because the Keynesians work for government. Their whole livelihood is based on government. That's why I said earlier, in the beginning of this discussion, why they can only conceive of a world in which government dominates the money supply because 
that's where their personal interests lie. And I think that's another key aspect of mainstream economics. Why don't I digress and point out that, that mainstream economics is marred by two things, uh, the, 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 uh, the desire to sit at, at the tables of power, as manifested by John Maynard Keynes, who clearly was a power-hungry person, who was infatuated with Nazi Germany and with the Soviet Union. Uh, he revealed this quite openly in his talks. Uh, and uh, the second problem with mainstream economics is that it wants to imitate physics. It wants to be esoteric. It wants to be mathematical. That's why they focus on equilibrium states so they can mathematize the economy. With that said, amazingly enough, with those two handicaps, uh, the handicap of, course, of wanting to sit at the tables of power is indeed that you become an inflationist because inflationism is good for the powerful. Uh, you, you see everything from a top-down perspective. You think you can manipulate the economy because that is where uh, you have the possibility of becoming chairman of the Federal Reserve or advisor to presidents. So that warps their viewpoint. Uh, and, and then on top of that, the viewpoint is more warped by their mathematization. Uh, I digress because you were initially asking me about their hang up with inflation. And I believe it comes from that sort of intellectual disease, uh, their desire to sit, sit at the tables of power. That's why Keynes called gold the barbarous relic, because indeed it was barbarous to somebody like him. It got in his way. One point you were making there was also about entrepreneurs adjusting to the price level as it rises or falls, right? And so traditionally, I mean, in the world today, entrepreneurs who are doing long-term contracts, they may build in some kind of CPI term or some kind of inflation term. Now, in a if we were to live in a growth deflation world, like let's say we lived on a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, then entrepreneurs could simply price in the other way around. Yeah. They could build yeah. in some kind of you know, uh, you know, decrease in the prices. Right. Uh, but I suppose the point that, you know, if I were to steel man this point against that, they might say, someone might say, well, hang on, Bitcoin is too volatile. Why would anyone price in Bitcoin, right? Uh, but I suppose the, re the, the rejoinder, what would your uh, thought be on that? Would it be that as Bitcoin grows, it will be less volatile? Yes. Well, actually, yeah, I'm glad you raised that question because um, that had, that was indeed a problem that uh, Larry White had. Uh, I mentioned Larry as, as a as a uh, intellectual colleague of George Selgin. Uh, Larry's at George Mason University, a very good place. Um, Larry uh, said he's working on a book about Bitcoin, and his problem is because of the fixed supply, it's very volatile in price. Actually, Safadian had a very clear-cut response to that, uh, and uh, you know that that uh, to elaborate on Larry's point, uh, it's volatile in price compared to gold, and and gold. According to Larry, gold has the advantage of expanding its supply because there are indeed, you know, we have all the above ground gold and then we have the mining of gold every year. So we have an increase in the supply. Uh, and uh, and really, uh, actually, Safian didn't put it as clearly in his debate with, with George as he did when he spoke to uh, uh, my, my son and me, because uh, we met prior to that to learn a few things from him. Uh, it's really simply that if you can imagine... Uh, a uh, that that the price of Bitcoin goes to I'll pick a number easily a million dollars an ounce two million dollars an ounce uh, as it could uh, it, it obviously uh, is now worth what I mean at uh, tenth it's worth far less than gold is uh, and uh, but if in terms of actual value uh, it goes to very uh, a much higher price than today which it will if it's going to become money then it will gradually become less 
volatile. In other words, if somebody wants to buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin today, he has a vast potential to royal the price. But if he wants to buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, when Bitcoin is worth several trillion dollars because of a very high price, a very high price that it would be appropriately given because it's going to become money, then clearly that volatility question goes away. And then, of course, Safadine made another very good point, which is that, that, that Larry is making far too much out of the expansion of the supply of gold. Uh, the expansion supply of gold adds like less than 1% a year to the supply because there's such a massive supply already there. The, the truth is, the reason why gold is less volatile is again, because it's got the high price and the, and the huge quantity so that the capital value of all the gold in the world is such that if you're going to buy a billion dollars worth of gold, then, then all of that value can absorb that billion dollars. Bitcoin will get there once it rises in price. So I think that was a fairly simple answer to what seemed to be a naughty problem. Excellent answer. Uh, yeah, that's some really great insights there. Um, Gene, I normally try to keep the episodes around an hour, but uh, are you okay to keep talking or are you... Sure, I could talk to another few hours. I'm sure your readers, will, your listeners, will go to sleep before I do. <laughs> what else you got? Well, uh, actually, I was curious as well uh, if you've got any thoughts around what might be a good comparative for Bitcoin. And here I'm asking about things like you know base money, M2, M3, etc. Uh, you oh, know, wow. so there are different, I guess, uh, ways to conceive of the money supply and. I don't know, Austrians also have, I think, as Rothbard came up with, uh, I think it's called the true money supply. Uh, so, I mean, there are different, uh, you know, comparisons. Do you have any ideas on, you know, typically people compare Bitcoin and gold, right? Gold has, you know, a, a, if you will, a market cap of something like 8 trillion around that area, whereas Bitcoin today is, you know, a little bit under 200 billion. What, what do you believe would be like a more appropriate way to think about the money supply? Wow. Well, you used good numbers, so I want to pick up on the point and just Go back to my earlier point, which is that, again, Bitcoin has that low capital value because it's low in price, but it could rise to a million dollars per Bitcoin and be comparable in terms of, of, of its capital worth uh, as gold is, and therefore it would not be so volatile. But the, the, yeah, the point, uh, I, I, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with, with, with uh, Rothbard's rather agonized attempts to, to count up the money supply in terms of what is most liquid. And uh, I, I, I think that's an interesting exercise. Uh, but I, I mean, the best answer I can give to this subject is that we've been talking about gold as money, we've been talking about Bitcoin as money, and then we've been talking about uh, the US dollar, the, the, uh, the, uh, the euro, the yen, the Canuck buck as money. Uh, and and those are indeed uh, uh, the what we use because indeed the U.S. has has a, a legal tender rule and and the legal tender rule is is constraining and the constraining rule is that is that you and I you and I could make a, a contract in bananas if we want uh, I will pay you bananas uh, for uh, for services rendered but uh, because bananas are not legal tender. Uh, I will have a, a much uh, more difficult time getting that contract enforced, uh, and you will have a more difficult time uh, if there is a problem. Uh, but if it's legal tender uh, of the U.S., then 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 you'd have a much easier time in the U.S. courts getting that problem enforced. So, uh, but and I mention that only because. By and large, when it comes to that moment in which a transaction is made, uh, the transaction is made in one of those currencies or the transaction is made in Bitcoin. And really, uh, 
the only interesting part of this, uh, uh, this whole exercise, which I've been well aware of, of course, I'm aware of, you know, M1 by M1 um, in the classic uh, tradition of the uh, of the monetary economist, M1 is just, you know, cash and checking accounts. And that's, that's those are the immediate uh, uh, uses we put to transactions and purchases. But but there's no question that you can use some other liquid things. For example, if you want to if you want to uh, to put up margin to uh, to buy uh, to speculate in commodities, then you can put up T bills, Treasury bills, uh, Treasury bills which which are very liquid, which uh, which you know you can put up you know, 30, 90 day Treasury bills, uh, which are earning interest. So there is always potential to use. Uh, what is called near monies, near money, uh, which is uh, that it's very liquid. You can convert it fairly quickly uh, to money, and, uh, and but it's earning something. So there will be a need, a, a clear motivation to keep uh, your money in something that is earning some interest for you, that's working uh, for you. This gets into lots of different uh, complications having to do with fractional reserve banking. But the only simple point I want to make is that Yes, we will always live in that world. We will always live in that world in which, uh, in which it will become uh, profitable for financial institutions to to, to offer to people uh, uh, ways of being in near money, so they can earn a little bit of interest, and so that where they where they're they're paying interest, and where where why would I have the motivation to do that? If, I, if you and I have a financial institution, we want people to put their money with us, and we want to offer them as many inducements to do so as possible. This, this might begin to to start segueing into discussion of fractional reserve banking, but I only wanted to make the more limited point that that even in a world of Bitcoin, and as in today's world, we do have near monies. We will certainly not have, hopefully not have, so many treasury bills out there because we have you know a government that's rapacious and borrowing money, and it can flood uh, flood the uh, the economy with these short term treasury bills that that are liquid and that mature quickly and that can be used as 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 quasi money. But but we will always have. Uh, what, what, uh, different, uh, different sort of academic discussions about how much, how much uh, uh, medium exchange do we really have, even in a world of Bitcoin. If we have, however, 21 million Bitcoin, we will have put that in the center of the universe, and then just outside, we could have uh, certain instruments where you've bought it with Bitcoin, but you're only holding that instrument that could be converted very quickly to money. So that will always be a presence, but I don't think in itself it's very decisive. If we have 21 million units of Bitcoin, we will always have some near monies on the periphery around it, but I, I, I don't think that makes a huge difference in terms of our trying to figure out what is money. What Rothbard was trying to do was figure out what is money in this current economy. Economy, and uh, was it savings accounts? What could be converted? Was it uh, you know all of that stuff? Interesting exercise, but not really decisive for a world in which we have a free market in money. Fantastic, and I think with that we could also think of it like. So right now, part of being a Bitcoiner is that you hold your own keys and that you are uh, verifying using your own full node. But I think the point to, you know, to sort of put that into the context of uh, this kind of the banking system, if you will, in a Bitcoin world, that there may be big Bitcoin uh, providers, right? So, and the, in some sense, they become like a Bitcoin bank, right? So, the Coinbase, Zappo, and other, let's say, other big Bitcoin companies. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the crucial point is that there would be no legal tender laws saying that you know you uh, you you private individuals out there, you must regard a Coinbase 
Bitcoin IOU, the same as a Zappo Bitcoin IOU, the same as a Bitcoin stored on your own full node with your own keys, which mm-hmm. are different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think would uh, perhaps the intuition there would be there might be a difference in the prices of these, wow. and or at least there would be some difference in the consideration of these, right? Uh-huh. I would say, uh-huh. you know, holding Bitcoin on my own keys is obviously that's real mm-hmm. Bitcoin, whereas Bitcoin held for you by Coinbase, for example, is not the wow. same. Wow. And, and you are saying, when you say it's not not the same uh you're not saying that 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 if you use the one you'd have to pay more in bitcoin for the same item is that what you're suggesting that you don't mean that right do you right no i mean more uh, sort of in the i'm i'm just saying in the sense that people should, would naturally be more uh, they would scrutinize harder of some of these institutions to be like hold on are they doing fractional reserve here uh, uh, do they really have the bitcoins that they claim to have and I think that natural skepticism might drive people towards the self-custody, holding your own keys version of Bitcoin. Does that does that make sense in your view? Or mm-hmm. well, 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 certainly. If if I understand your drift, then almost all, certainly, Selden and others uh, agree that clearly the 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 free that that we are naturally conservative about our money I mean, if that's what you're suggesting if i understand you correctly most people are and that and that there will be uh, on the free market uh, the, the there will be dominant brands that will have to establish a refer- reputation for safety and soundness uh, that it's, it's it's the last thing that we want uh, to have to worry about is the availability of our money uh, uh, to, to transact with you know we've got so many other considerations in mind again the the the, the main point I'm, I was trying to make earlier is that the holding of money balances is actually a, a relatively trivial thing. We don't want to hold money. We want to hold only those money, only so many money balances as we think we need to make purchases with. Uh, and uh, and that means we're going to keep them to a minimum and it does get back. But but indeed, we want uh, we want to, that to be perhaps the least interesting thing about what we do with our money, even those of us who love to talk about investment and speculation. The, the least interesting thing, because that's simply what we have available to make purchases with. And so indeed, the whole, I mean, just imagine a world in which all of those current traders will have to look for something else to do with them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Of course, obviously, in a way, we're really talking about closing down about 80% of those people who earn their money in finance, who trade uh, treasury bills. Who, I mean, so many things will become much simpler in the world, uh, very nicely boring, and and we can get on with our lives and do other things uh, rather than worry about uh, such things, such matters. But if your suggestion is, is indeed that the free market will uh, will bring a safety and soundness uh, that's for sure although i guess i like to focus on all of the eccentricities of people and and then you know we be you know that's where we're suffering we say well there might indeed be a fair amount of you know a bitcoin cash uh, that people want to hold that people you know want to hold uh, you know maybe some want to hold some dollar bills the idea that everybody's got to be trading bitcoin on computer i mean checkbooks uh, there there would be uh, pretty much uh, con- uh, obviously a response to the quirks of people when it comes to the way they want to transact in money. But your point point you just made to the extent that I understand it is is well taken. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, I guess even to that, um, there, there is a product out there called the Open Dime, right? And so people can uh, basically send Bitcoins to an address and it, it kind of is like a physical Bitcoin, if you will. I mean, it's obviously, there's different trade-offs around that, but you can literally trade that around and so to your point around having you know cash and coins 
open diams and similar devices may be uh, able to fill some of that role. Uh, look, I, I think I've kept you for a little bit longer than I, uh, yeah. Um, okay. but, uh, look, we, before we, uh, the only thing we didn't talk yep. about, and the way I'm glad we ducked it because it's a little bit complicated, is uh, is the debate that um, uh, that uh, George Sutton had with Bob Murphy about fractional reserve banking. And uh, there, I guess, I think you have pretty strong views, but uh, and and I uh, my views are a little bit wobbly, probably compared with yours. But uh, maybe that'll be a discussion for another day, just to tantalize uh, our listeners. Out there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We'll keep that for another episode. Uh, but uh, Gene, do you want to just make sure you tell my listeners about the Soho Forum? Tell them where they can find you and what's coming up. And by the time you're listening to this, we probably will have had uh, the debate on the war on drugs. But uh, you can go to uh, thesoulforum.org or to uh, to Reason uh, TV, Reason Video, Reason, uh, Reason uh, Podcast to listen to all of the debates we've had. Uh, I'm actually working on a collection of transcripts of some of them are interesting debates, which will include some commentary from me. We've had uh, over 35 debates so far on different topics, mainly of interest, of course, to libertarians. Uh, my big confrontation is going to happen at NYU, a much bigger hall than we usually use. We usually uh, uh, hold these debates at the Subculture Theater on Bleecker Street, which seats uh, a little over 200. Uh, this, this debate on socialism is going to see it going to be at Kimmel Hall at NYU, which seats nearly 500. I would like to attract a lot of socialists to the debate. That's going to be uh, November 5th. Uh, the other big one that's that that where we sold out so quickly that we're renting a much bigger hall. This in this case uptown, uh, it will be the debate between Scott Horton and uh, and and William Crystal. William Crystal uh, is known certainly in the U.S., maybe in Australia, as being perhaps the most prominent neoconservative in our country on the subject of foreign policy. And so I was quite grateful to him for consenting to debate. Um, a rebel, a brilliant genius rebel on foreign policy like Scott Horton. And as soon as I announced it, we sold 250 tickets within a couple of days. We're now up to 500 tickets and it won't be until next May. Uh, so that will be a big debate uh, that we're going to have. And of course, it, you in Australia, if you can't make it to New York, you can always listen to our debates. And as I say, we've got 35 that we've done, and uh, all of them, I think, of interest. Some of more interest than others. The ones that I just, that you and I just discussed, uh, the one, uh, uh, the the two that have occurred on Bitcoin, are available on podcast and video. Fantastic! I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Gene. Thank you so much for joining me today. We'll do it again uh, next time. Fractional Reserve Banking. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Gene. Just a quick announcement. Are you running your own Bitcoin full node? Have you figured out how to connect a hardware wallet to your full node? As some of you know, my co-founder Katan and I recently set up an Australian Bitcoin education company, Ministry of Nodes. We ran some in-person workshops to teach Bitcoin and got some awesome feedback. We wanted a way to scale this up over the web. So now we're announcing the Ministry of Nodes self-sovereignty webinar. The first one is coming up on the 2nd of November, Saturday afternoon or night for the people in the US, and that will be Sunday morning the 3rd of November for Australian attendees. It's Bitcoin only for payment. It's priced at 615,000 sats or approximately 50 US dollars at the time of recording. And yes, shout out American HODL for inspiring our pricing. 
So it's a seven hour webinar, including some time for breaks, and it's targeted for beginners or perhaps some intermediates who want to learn how to set up their own node and get practical advice and guidance and tips on how to self-custody Bitcoin. You might be coming at Bitcoin from a more economic or finance perspective and be less technical, or you might be on a Trezor or a Ledger and not be clear on how to run your own node and how to validate your own Bitcoin transactions. Learning about Bitcoin is like drinking from a fire hose and there are lots of traps along the way. Let us curate and teach you the material so you can confidently put it into practice. Go to ministryofnodes.com.au and click workshops to sign up. Lastly, subscribe to the podcast, find the show notes and transcript on my website, stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.